0: Entering the Freedom
1: Hut. We are in the COVID storm in New York City. Where else will it hit and how badly? Are some of these models perhaps overstating what's going to happen in other parts of the country? We'll address that. And also, how do we reopen America? The second front of this two-front war needs more administration attention. We'll get into the political fight over chloroquine. Not being a quarantine neighborhood tattletale. And also, where does Joe Biden think he is? That and more coming up.
0: This, this is, is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, Our mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One,
2: all, ten.
0: Make no mistake.
2: America, great a great America again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show begins. The former CIA analyst, former member of the NYBD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton now.
2: open our country up. We have to open our country up. We have to get go. We have to open our country up. No country was designed for this. Will you close it? We're in the midst of the greatest economic boom in history. For any country, our country had the greatest economic boom in history. We had the most people working that we've ever had, almost 160 million people. And then from 160 million, they want nobody to leave their house. You know, you could use the term cold turkey, right? That's called cold turkey. A country's not designed, this country is not designed for that. We have to get our country back. And I think it's going to come back, and
1: I hope it's going to come back very quickly. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Wow, we are uh, now weeks deep into this fight against COVID-19. We are doing everything that we can as a country, as a nation, as, as individuals, all the way up and down to try and get a handle on this situation. The president, though, beginning what I think is a very necessary part of a shift in focus from not just, remember, you can do, we can walk and chew gum at the same time this is not taking away from one this is just opening up another part of another part of our mission set as a nation which is to make sure the economy keeps going because as we all know the ramifications of a collapsed economy over the long term it's it's misery and despair and loss of health and loss of life the likes of which we can't even really fathom i i think most people do understand that, at least certainly everybody working very hard with the administration right now in the White House, the advisors around it. There's a recognition of this, but we are going to have to work hard to strike a, a balance here. There's been more attention placed by the president on the possibility of a second task force looking at economic reopening because we need to do it. I don't know what the timeline is, but we do. Everyone agrees that we need to do this thing. But well, I shouldn't say everybody. It seems like almost everybody agrees with that. But there's still this uh, anger that pops up the moment that you say we've got to get back to work. There is a whole very uh, they're, they're quite vicious, actually. There's a a virtue signaling. Uh, leftist contingent that views any talk at all about the economy as somehow a corporate special interest thing or th- they don't understand or, or, or they don't care about what I'm seeing. And th- this weekend, I walked around New York City to take as much of a look as I could at what's going on here. I had a mask on. I had gloves on. I'm, I'm doing the precautions, but I have to walk the dog. And so I was walking around. Empty streets. I mean, you can walk through Times Square right now at a time of year. It's it's early springtime. Usually there would be thousands and thousands of people packed in there. And as we know, because of what we're facing right now, it is largely almost entirely empty. You also have... The changes that you see in basic day to day life for people, including now every store that I see, I've there were some that were slow to adopt this, but not only are they limiting the number of people who can go in over the last few last, I'd say, week or so, they've really ramped this up. You now have to stand at hash marks that they painted on the street outside the store, separated by six feet or so so that nobody has to be concerned about waiting in line and catching COVID-19. My friends, at at what point does this start to look like we're actually doing things that are either not necessary or or even counterproductive? We have to be able to have this discussion. We have this discussion about all other aspects of national and, and political life. And this movement to shut down any debate from those who seem to think that there is clarity from the experts. The experts are advising they do not have answers. That is a fact. They do not have answers about how quickly the economy can reopen. They do not have answers about when we will be through this. They do not have answers about whether or not we will face a second wave in the fall. And I understand right now the primary focus is keeping our hospitals from being overwhelmed. I'm watching this data from the uh, IHME, this is the data that everyone is so focused on all the time. I'm watching the data, and it is consistently wrong in overestimating. Now, you say this, they're overestimating hospitalizations, they're overestimating fatalities state by state again and again. And people look at you and they say, are you minimizing the horrible loss of life no people who are questioning what's going on here want to make sure that we are making sound decisions about resources and about policy for something that is already painful for the american people and could become catastrophic over time in fact there's a certainty a certainty that the united states economy if we try to do this let's say until a vaccine comes and there are some people who are advocating for, if not that, something pretty close to it, Uh, we would not be the same country after that vaccine. We would be uh, dramatically less free, less less well off as individuals, less healthy, less prosperous. So we know that there has to be something in the middle here. There has to be some place that we can go in between complete lockdown for 18 months and okay, everybody, you know, no big deal. We're just going to go back to work tomorrow. No one is saying that that's a straw man. And that's a very annoying tendency that I'm seeing among particularly a lot of journalists who still have jobs who haven't figured out yet that their jobs will go away in a matter of a few months because the advertising revenues from the businesses that are the support model for all media are getting crushed right now. There are a lot of people that write for these websites and think that they're just paid. They're paid to produce content that mirrors a lot of the other content you'll see, especially because, you know, the news media is 90 percent plus liberal. So, you know, BuzzFeed is writing on the same stuff that HuffPost is writing on the same stuff that Salon is writing on the same stuff that Vox. You look at all these different sites. uh, And it's true of conservative media as well, by the way. We're all going to be suffering here dramatically, economically. Uh, and, and there's already furloughs. There's already some layoffs that have taken place. Mostly furloughs when I've seen mandatory pay cuts or voluntary pay cuts, but they're really mandatory and they can call them whatever they want. All of that is going on right now and it's only going to get worse. We don't have the luxury of endless time to figure this out. We need a plan. Everyone was saying we didn't anticipate COVID-19 well enough. I think that's true. The experts let us down there. I would note I could make the case all day long. The experts have absolutely let us down. So now we're turning to the experts. And not, it's not in bad faith. I think they did their best. I think that they looked at the data coming out of China, and that was the only data they had. And they don't come from a perspective of being somebody who deals with the lies of the Chinese government on a regular basis. So they were too quick to believe it. But there is this elevation of epidemiological experts within the upper reaches of government of the federal bureaucracy, there's an elevation of them into something like priest status now, where we must listen to them to question anything is to not care about all the death and destruction that's going on around us. And it's, it's terrible right here in New York. And I'm very aware of it. I'm aware of it not just when I read the really um, gut-punching numbers about all the people that are dying in hospitals, particularly in in Brooklyn and Queens, uh, but also when you just try to live your day-to-day life here. We are all under effectively a form of self-imposed house arrest. That is what is going on. You're able to leave the apartment for a short uh, duration and have very minimal human contact when you go outside. Why should this be the case all across the country? There are a lot of questions that need answering here. And that's one of the things that I want to do today. I I want to start these dialogues. I want to get these discussions going now. Because I know that the people that currently are being left in charge of the decision making, they're under so much pressure to adhere to a false principle, which is that there is nothing to there is no concern here for the government beyond maximum resources and maximum lockdown in order to uh, fight against this virus and. Uh, save every individual life that can happen. They are doing that. That's an important principle. It's not the only principle. And this has been a discussion that has really been put aside because people have been uh, more, they've really been morally blackmailed into if you think that tens of millions of people losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, losing their life savings in response to what the experts say are models and tactics that are are not to be questioned you're a bad you're a bad person this is this is what this has turned into we know it's uh it's going to be much more interesting down the line when we look back at some of the was well, some of the tracing and investigations about how this disease spread we'll have much better sense of what really happened right now we're just after weeks of the government saying don't panic we're in the midst of a massive panic response Shutting down everything and having people want to shut down every state equally across the country and not have an end date in mind and not be willing to even discuss how we reopen the economy and not look at the way we can introduce mitigation measures that also allow for more and more business to be open and for people to start to live their lives again. Uh, This this is the change that needs to happen and it needs to happen now. I, I know we're in the midst of this. I understand that it's as bad right now in the next week or so. They're saying it's as bad as it's going to be at any point. All right. Why would we wait until the, the worst part of this storm passes before we have a plan? Why can't we have a discussion now about how, all right, the target is, you know, when, when deaths and new cases and. Uh, hospitalizations, people in the ICU beds, when they're at this number in this place, we will do the following. We will try the following measures and we will adjust as needed. Why wouldn't it be a state by state basis? It makes no sense to think that New York City and Wyoming should be on uh, on the same plan here. Social distancing is built into the way of life for a lot of people across the country before they even knew it was social distancing. This is why this uh, media fixation on crunching the, the data right now, crunching the numbers from cell phone GPS tracking to show that the, there, are, you know, there are parts of, of out west and in the south where there's a lot more travel going on than there is in the industrial Midwest, the northeast, really the coasts, and the area in and around Detroit and Chicago uh, well, this is an urbanization versus rural life or urban versus rural life issue, largely. And all the data that we have, and why is New York so much worse than Los Angeles? The only real answer you have is a crowd density issue. That, that's the only thing anyone's come up with. Los Angeles also has a lot of international flights. Los Angeles had many people coming in, traveling in from hot, the hotspot in China of Wuhan. New York has much more close density, not just in... People think of close density in travel. What well, they need to understand about why New York is different. And this is a thing that I know very well as someone who has lived in incredibly cramped quarters with many roommates. And, you know, I, I had... A, a, we had a family of six growing up living in an apartment that you know we were my my two brothers and i shared one room i mean this is this is normal so there are three of us in one one bedroom i mean this is normal in new york and that changes very much the transmission rates and and i'm just basing it on what the what the experts tell us close quarters Uh, continuous close and continuing contact actual physical contact with the other human beings is a major vector for spread of this disease it's a a very important indicator of how much it'll spread that is much more common here in New York than it is in other places so I look I, I know there's a lot of things that are all happening here at the same time but we need to have the discussion about getting America going and opening up now that doesn't mean we have to open it up now, but we have to be able to talk about this. And I've really lost patience with this movement of just shut it down, shut everything down as long as the experts tell us. We can't do that forever. We have to start from that. We, we cannot. In fact, it would be wrong to do that forever or until we when I, mean, I say forever, until we get a vaccine, which is at least 18 months away. My friends, the vaccines might not even work. We have to establish a way of living life and going forward as a society without a silver bullet for this. Now, I'm going to talk about chloroquine. I'm going to talk about treatments. Treatments, I think, are are going to be a major part of getting us back to a greater degree of normalcy. And we'll discuss the I I spent so much time this weekend reading up on where they are and where all of that stands. But the discussion needs to happen now. We cannot be silenced by people who think they are listening to the experts, but actually they're giving in to panic because they won't listen to anything else about the other parts of life that also do matter somewhat. That there is an importance to letting people feed themselves, letting people produce, letting people go about the business of America, and that's, that should be a discussion that we can have. While well, we're also trying to save as many of our fellow Americans as possible and do everything that we can with the resources that we have, those resources, by the way, are dependent upon the economy that we have. So, so the fight, just as it would be in a war, and we need you know, we use the war analogy to get ourselves fired up, but then you start to think of okay, industrial production, commercial activity. Wh- why did we win World War II? Yeah, sure, we have incredibly brave we had incredibly bra- uh, brave men in uniform who won that war for us. But if we had sent them to fight the Japanese and the Nazis without the tanks and the planes and it wouldn't have gone very well. Right. We understand these things are linked and we understand that it's time for us to have a real discussion about the strategy for America going forward. The president said it this weekend. We need to keep looking at it. How do we reopen? What does it look like? That needs to be thought about honestly and intensely now.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: You know, obviously we know anyone can spread the disease, right? Unwittingly. Right. So why even have a few businesses open? Why not just shut everything down? There are grocery stores that are open, fast food places. Why even take a little chance to shut well,
2: the bit up? Have to, yeah, we'll answer that question later. All I can say is that right now things are looking really good and opening up with a bang will be a great thing and there's nobody going to be happier than me.
1: Why not shut everything down, including places where you need food, including the places that sell you the milk and the bread and the, and the meat and the stuff for your family and yourself? Why not shut that down, too? Now, there's a part of me that just wants to do what everyone's been doing, saying that was a, a reporter in a briefing by the White House task force effectively saying, why take any risk? Now, see, this is what we've gone to now. This has become a, a more common mindset than we want to admit, that we'll take no risks. This is, this is the mindset of people die driving, we shut down all the highways indefinitely until we find perfectly safe driving. That is happening now. There, there is a mindset that is growing. That's not how we live our lives. It is not how we live our lives, dealing with any other disease or any other risk that is out there. Life is all about looking at risks and making choices. There is no risk-free existence worth living when people start to say when journalists when those who have platforms and are are supposed to be informing us why not just shut down everything well for how long people will last at least a few weeks without any food do we just see how long before people start being at risk of, of starvation how could someone ask such a stupid question well it's because it's reflective of a mindset that whatever the experts tell us we should just do not question even if it means shut down everything, including grocery stores and pharmacies that give people necessary medicine to keep them alive. I'm just wondering, you know, what costs are some people on the left in the media not willing to pay to fight COVID? Is there anything that they're not willing to do?
0: Thanks for listening to the Buck, Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: But I'm worried that if we see in the news presentations of single cases as uh, heralded uh, being uh, something that I have never seen before, uh, this is so horrible, uh, that's the worst uh, case of uh, uh, severe uh, respiratory distress syndrome that I have seen, we are uh, falling into a trap of of sensationalism. Can you imagine what would have happened if, 60 million deaths that happen every year in this planet we had a meter counting them uh, one by one and and having stories written for each one of them it it, it would be horrible i mean we have uh, we have gone into a complete panic state uh, measuring so far uh, a sizable number of deaths, but nothing, nothing close to the total cumulative mortality that we see both in this country and around this world.
1: So that's Professor Yonitis, who is at Stanford Medical School, is an epidemiologist, world class epidemiologist, based on all the stuff that you can read about him online. And he's saying we're giving into panic here, that this this has gotten to be not helpful. This is too far that all of these news stories and you, you keep seeing this happening, there'll be a news story. Oh, uh, a healthy 40 year old dies. And then they talk about the family and it's, it's terrible. Right. Every, every death is, is terrible. But then you read deeper into it and you find, OK, well, the healthy 40 year old and then the news media keeps doing this because they know everyone's going to click on it because we've been told that there's higher risk factors for certain people. Now, that doesn't change how much we care about defending anyone. It's just a question of how can we assess the measures necessary? We need to protect vulnerable populations, and that's going to continue for a long time. But what do we do with the much less vulnerable population that has to go about economic activity, just activity in general, in order to give the best possible chance to defeat this virus and let all of all all people breathe more easily? in the shortest possible time so that we don't have to keep worrying about this, including our, our particularly vulnerable populations. But you see this news story and they'll say healthy 40 year old dies. And then you'll click in it. And this I've done this so many times now that I don't even click it on it anymore. And and you'll look down a little bit and it'll say, well, you know, he, he actually uh, he, he had, you know, type two diabetes and had asthma. And you say, OK, now that's a life just like every other life is being lost here. It's precious. This person has loved ones and it's a loss that shouldn't it shouldn't have happened. Right. We, we all think we should have been able to stop this from happening. All right. Wh- but why did the, why did the media l- like to run the story of somebody who's you know, healthy 40 year old when you click on it? It's no, this is another person who is at a high risk. We, we lost another brother. We lost another sister here who's from the high risk population. But m- why misrepresent that? Because everyone's panicking and everyone will click right away. It's even worse than I thought. That's the mentality that the media keeps going for. It's even worse than I thought. And they're exploiting this. And to people who say, well, you know, you, you, they get into this, this uh, really m- marinating deeply in all the all the the disturbing emotions here and the sadness and the agony of losing our fellow Americans. Are, are they are they indicating that, that it's is there something that's more sad about someone dying from COVID-19 than another individual of the same age with a family and kids, and, or, or, it's an, or it's a single person. It doesn't matter. It's a human life, right? A person who dies of heart, a heart disease is, is one of these things. more Because it seems like there's now an elevation of this, of the deaths. And this is what Dr. Yonitis is saying here. There's an elevation of this that's occurring for purposes that are not helpful, except to get a lot of clicks for the media and to drive a panic narrative. And I think increasingly and and this is a little this is a little early in this phase, but we will see more of it. It will become more apparent and I'll probably have to replay this clip for you in about two months that there will be people who, no matter what the reality is here of all the numbers, the death toll hospitalizations, uh, they will be very invested in the story that this was the most horrific thing to happen in 100 years and that it's all Donald Trump's fault. This will be politicized grotesquely. You have to remember that the the media ran with the lie of Russia collusion during a time of of unbelievable American prosperity and peace and things were going great. And we heard all day long about something that wasn't even a real story. What do you think they're going to do with this? You think they're going to report on this in a neutral fashion and be fair and be fair minded about what the response has really been? And how we have done, you know, it'd be one thing if America was suffering through this and other countries were, you know, just fine. Spain, Italy, China, I mean, we're going to see more and more countries that have been hit hard by this. And yes, it's a tragedy. It's terrible. But if you're going to look at the response and we're going to gauge the response, that means that we have to be able to take some take some looks at the numbers and, and do some calculations about, OK, what did they say was going to happen versus what did happen? And Professor Unitas is just saying we got we got to stop. We have to stop with this. Every single death gets reported on as if this is indicative of what's going to happen to all of us. I'm seeing the the, the term, you know, the terms used around about, about how this is fear exploitation. And it absolutely is. Here is on the numbers. And this is also necessary if we're going to look at where the numbers are right now and what they've said they would be. What you'll find is that they're overstated. They're overstated uh, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths for where we are now using models that are a week or two old. And they're not overstated by look, if, if, if they said that there would be a, a number of of deaths uh, that were let, let's say, we, you know, let, let's say they got it just a little bit wrong. I would say, all right, I mean, the, the not the the models are, are working pretty well, folks. We got to play. We got to pay close attention to it. Um. The I.M.H.E. model for coronavirus for COVID-19, that is the primary model the White House is relying on. People are saying that it's using New York, New Jersey data and then extrapolating into the rest of the country, which doesn't make any sense. I don't know if that's true because they won't explain it. The White House won't explain it. But here's what we do know. The model predicted 121,000 Americans would be hospitalized yesterday because of COVID-19. The actual number is thirty one thousand. Now, that's a lot of people, and that's really serious. And, you know, I, I get a little annoyed that we have to keep saying every life is precious. And of course, every life is precious. You know, you wouldn't be listening to this show if you didn't think that I came from the perspective of being a moral and decent person who wants every human being who can be saved to be saved. Of course I do. But can we look at the numbers and then say, well, hold on a second. If we're making determinations about equipment, materiel medical personnel based upon models that are off by a factor of four. And they're not trying to predict six months from now. They're trying to predict week to week. Isn't that, isn't that important? Shouldn't that get our attention? Why do I get shouted down? Why do I get yelled at by blue checks on social media for just saying, hey, guys, the the model that they used a week ago is off by a factor of four. Maybe we should reevaluate some of these models and some of the decisions we're making based upon them. And then it's then it's you don't care if grandma, you know, if grandma's lungs fail and she and she painfully dies. That's what they say to you. And it's disgusting and and I'm sick of it. And there's it's very tough not to see a political divide happening here where it's much easier. The psychology of the anti-Trump left is set in a way that they would rather see a continued shutdown of the economy and continued um, look the, the rooting against America phenomenon. It's getting harder and harder to feel like that's not a very real thing for the left here. Because what have they been saying for years while Trump is president? He's a clear and present danger. He's a threat to our democracy. They've put and we're going to talk more about about Biden, who, who legitimately. I mean, it, it seems like this guy is it seems like this guy is just not well enough for this mentally. It does seem like that based on what he says. And I'm not the only one who's saying it. There are A lot of people, including people that are not even a little bit Trump supporters who are saying that Democrats were saying it six, seven, eight months ago. Now they're pretending that they never did. But we have to look at the date. If the data is going to be used to make determinations about our lives, to tell us that we have to stay under house arrest for weeks, perhaps months. I want to be able to discuss that data and ask people to explain why we should do this. Look, they keep telling us that the lockdowns work, the lockdowns work. Well, is it the lockdowns or is it the mitigation steps that's carrying a majority of that burden of bringing the curve down? How much better off are we just from people? How much better do we have? Here's the question that I can't get an answer from, and I bring it up, and I keep getting yelled at, and I get sick of it, but I think it's clear that it's important how much better off are we with what is in all but eight states under a total lockdown order and a cessation of most economic activity? How much better off are we with that than we would be if we said social distancing, mask and gloves, vulnerable populations protected, work from home if you can. But if you can't work from home and you're not in a high risk category and you're not, you don't have somebody who's in a high risk category in the home Person by person, we could start to think, I'm not saying that's the right move, but why can I not get an answer about that from anyone? We're being told, do this or else. Get on board or you're a bad person. That's where this is. I'm sorry, I, I don't accept that, especially when we see an enlargement of state authority and prerogatives that is stunning under any other circumstance. I know this is an emergency, but there are limits to what they should be doing in an emergency, too. We'll get into the COVID-19 neighborhood tattletale association that's been going on with all I mean, these crazy stories about what they're not letting people do and what, what people are getting fined for. We'll, we'll get into all of that. But I want to bring us back to more of what uh, the professor has to say about these numbers. And if he's wrong, okay, where are the experts explaining that he's wrong instead of just saying, no, they want to save lives and, and anyone who doesn't do what they say doesn't. That's not an argument. That's moral blackmail.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
3: I think that uh, uh, there's a very high chance that we are exaggerating. As, As we discussed, many of the features of this pandemic, of course, They're serious, but I think that the estimates are exaggerated, and I think that there's a risk of uh, really making some fundamental decisions about the structure of our civilization, of our society, of our future, that uh, may not be appropriate. Uh, I I think that uh, we have no clue how a society would work if you need to uh, build it around uh, a construct where everything is done from a distance. So. There are some models that suggest that if you go down that path of uh, basically lockdown, you may need to wait for 18 months. And I'm, I'm extremely worried about that scenario. I'm, I'm not sure that our world, our civilization uh, could survive that. 18
1: months. Now you got a guy who's a world-class expert in epidemiology from Stanford University who's saying that there are people who think that the way to deal with this is just lockdown for 18 months. That's unacceptable. We cannot do that. That cannot be the answer. This is go this goes back to uh, back to President Trump. The cure cannot be worse than the disease. There are limits to what we can do to fight against this. And for people who want to say if it saves just one life, how many lives are they willing to lose from people who are locked in their homes and uh, become suicidally depressed, overdose on drugs, don't have access to routine medical care that would prevent them from dying from other diseases. I mean, wh- where are the limits here? And if you're asking me or if you're asking, me, well, Buck, what what inf- what information do we have that these models are incorrect? It's all over the place. It's all over the place. Remember, we went from in a very brief period, the president talking about 15 days to slow the spread. And then maybe we're going to start loosening some of these shutdown measures that doesn't mean no person-to-person mitigation it just means we went from that to oh no you're a monster unless you just go for indefinite shutdown shut it down shut it all down look what's going on in new york i'm in new york new york is different it's a very unique place that in many ways is absolutely fantastic and i love it and this is my hometown but unfortunately when you're talking about a crowd disease which is what this is just like measles and Chicken poxies are called crowd diseases because the spread happens human to human and density really matters. New York is like a Petri dish for crowd diseases. We have close quarters living and close quarters travel and close quarters commerce all the time here. You know, there, there is no world in which you live in the five boroughs of New York City and you're not really dealing with people and you don't have to be up close with them. And, you know, you're you are smelling people's breath Every morning on the subway, you know, you know what they had for breakfast. That is the reality of living here. For a lot of you, you're like, yeah, that's not my reality. I know, which is why New York is different, which is why we can't be making projections for the whole country based on what's going on here. And I am intimately familiar with just how brutal it is here. I have friends who are frontline medical personnel. I'm talking to them on a regular basis. I have friends who are business owners here. They're shut down. You know, I, I understand that there's a lot going on here. I understand there's a lot of pain in this city and there's a lot of fear. And I'm having to live with that myself. I don't want my fellow American to suffer more than they have to, because the policy community is in a panic, in part driven by those who want to see this country failing as long as they can blame Trump for it. That's a real thing that's happening. I'm not saying everyone. I think a lot of people that are engaged in this view it through a non-political lens. That's there, too. There's no question. But there's a loud minority here that sees the most important part of this as making sure that Trump is uh, politically suffering from this. He deserves that. They really believe that. He has blood on his hands. That's what they say. Meanwhile... uh, I mean, I'll never forget, even back before all this looked nearly as bad on the Bill Marshall, I said, don't you believe I said this to Bill and his panel when I they're asking me to assess Trump's response to this before we would had a single U.S. fatality. So I'm like, I don't know how are we gauging what hasn't happened yet? But I said, wouldn't you agree that Trump doesn't want a single fatality from this on U.S. soil because it's in his interest, whether you think he's moral or not, it's in his interest. And they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't concede that. No. No, they really think that Trump's a monster. See, the problem is you and I approach this as normal people like, well, how do we how do we view this as adults who want the best for the most amount of Americans want to protect life, want to protect our way of life and want to get this country back up and running, get get us back up on our feet, not hide. We don't have a national bunker to all hide in from this virus. We can't do that indefinitely. And there are other people that unfortunately have become so hardwired to view the most important thing in life to be Trump opposition, that it's very difficult to have a, a an open and honest conversation with them about what's going on in the country right now without being shouted down, without being told that you're you know, covering for Trump or you're, you're being a toady or whatever. No, I actually want I want what's best for all Americans, Democrat, Republican, independent, anarchist. I don't even care. I want us all to be in a better place. I'm trying to fight for that.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Unless we get this globally under control, there's a very good chance that it will assume a seasonal nature in the sense that even if we, and, and, I, and I hope it's not just if, but when we get it down to the point where it really is at a very low level, we need to be prepared that since it unlikely will be completely eradicated from the planet, that as we get into next season, we may see the beginning of a resurgence, and that's the reason why we're pushing so hard in getting our preparedness much better than it was, but importantly, pushing on a vaccine and doing clinical trials for therapeutic interventions so that hopefully, if in fact we do see that resurgence, we will have interventions that we did not have in the beginning of the situation that we're in right
1: now. What would those interventions be? There's a lot of talk right now about hydroxychloroquine. I will get to that in a few moments, the most up to date information that we've been able to pull together, as well as anecdotal information from frontline doctors that I talked to. I spent a lot of time on the phone yesterday with a doc who's a brilliant guy. And he was talking to me about, you know, the different virus microns and blah. All, all kind. I was like, "Whoa, doc, you know, speak to me like speak to me like I work in media, which means you know, I basically don't know anything. So that's what unfortunately that's what the media is full of people that think that uh, they didn't have to do homework and they're wrong. They should have done more homework. Uh, But Dr. Fauci is telling you something here that you have to remember, and that is that the as long as it takes chorus lockdown, as long as it takes also has already baked into their analysis that we're probably going to have to do another lockdown in the fall. So even if we ended this, let's say, in June, come September, we're going to have another lockdown. Nope. Not going to not going to work. People aren't going to do it. They, They can tell me that you need to do this. Right. The. The uh, hall monitor attitude that a lot of people are taking about this, you know, how dare you go into your front yard? I saw someone, someone that I know actually went out into their yard in DC and was lifting weights in their own yard, no one around them for at least 30 feet by himself. So they call the cops on him. They're calling the cops on him. We'll get into this. This hall monitor attitude about our fellow Americans, this is crazy. People need to exercise some judgment about what they think is bad judgment. But we're going to go back to a lockdown as soon as the the fall. Uh, Yeah, maybe we have better interventions. Maybe we got better medicines for this. Hopefully. We'll see. Every time I read about some promising new therapy, not the ones that have already gotten a lot of attention, they're saying, yeah, we're hoping to be in human trials by August or September. And, you know, we don't have a year of lockdown while medical authorities decide that the risk is low enough for us to start living our lives again. We're just going to reach mass noncompliance at some point. And this isn't uh, this is obvious. I mean, people, I don't know why they, you know, there's this. Uh, mentality that anybody who's saying this is being a being a bad person or being irresponsible. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but at some point, people are just going to say, no, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to start living my life more and more. And what are we going to have the authorities locking people up? They're going to put you in a cell where you'll be at risk from covid because of the density And because you wanted to go and live you wanted to live your life this is going to become a huge problem we need to start understanding that this what Fauci says you're globally under control oh so America is not going to be able to go back about its business because some other countries are going to struggle with this I mean I got news for Fauci other countries struggle with a lot of things that don't shut us down and this is where you know epidemiologist. yeah he understands more about you know, how a virus latches onto certain proteins and, you know, the processes by which infection occurs and all this. He doesn't know anything more than anybody else about what happens when people are told to stay in their homes for six months. He has no idea. It's never been done before. So we're just going to sit around and say, yeah, we're going to let this happen. We're going to let this continue to drag on in this way. No, we need a date, at least set a date that is the reevaluation metric, right? Let's say that it's, you know, it's Memorial Day. By Memorial Day, we need to look at where we are and decide. And that that for some of you probably are going to say that's way too far off. Whatever the date is, we can't just dr- be dragged along like this while the experts tell us that they're going to figure out what the what the future holds. We, we cannot wait for a cure to go back to living normal lives. And ultimately, when he says, you know, when, when the risk gets very, very low, Absent a cure and absent uh, you know, some miracle breakthrough, if this is out there, there's going to be risk of it. And we know a little bit more about how to deal with it. And But that means that if we go back to normal life, and this is what no one seems to want to say right now. But at some point, if we go back to a greater degree of normalcy, I'm not even talking about full normal life. That's a long way away, unfortunately, right now. We go back to greater normalcy. That means that people could get this and people could die from it that perhaps wouldn't have under the extreme lockdown scenario. We're we're going to reach a point where someone has to make that call. Someone's going to have to make that decision. And it's dishonest and it's gross to suggest that whoever that person is, whether it's the president or Fauci or the team, whoever it is, somehow doesn't care about people dying. Because then we do get back to, well, then I guess we need to shut down every year for three months because that would knock down flu death by 75%. Do the thirty or 40,000 people who die from flu every year, do they not count? Now, I'm not saying this is not worse than the flu. It is worse than the flu, but the principle must stand then, right? If, we, if there's no risk, if there's no risk that is tolerable for a society to be able to allow people to live their lives when there's the possibility of, uh, of infectious disease killing people from that openness, what is our future, really? You know, this becomes very troubling very quickly and you know fauci first of all was was catastrophically wrong about this in what january february catastrophically so people are telling me oh you know you're not an expert you don't know anything okay if my entire life was to prevent this from happening or at least give warning when it's about to happen if that's my entire life's work uh i would i would feel pretty pretty iffy about what's gone on so far from how I would have done, right? I mean, if, you, if you're Fauci and this is your moment, you know, this is your opportunity to avert Pearl Harbor yourself. And instead you're saying, yeah, I don't think the, I don't think the Japanese aircraft carriers are going to be a problem for us. You know, let's keep those planes wingtip to wingtip all lined up on the runway because we're worried about sabotage. I think you'd feel bad about that afterwards. And it's very hard to separate the his, the anti-Trump hysteria from people who think that he doesn't care. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's you know, evil from just the panic, the good faith, but still panic response that some people are having to. Oh, we can't handle this and, and try to start achieving a, a new a new normal, a new a greater degree of normalcy. Uh, this is this is getting to fundamental questions of freedom and the government's role in our lives and what's acceptable for them to, to, to tell us. And, you know, at some point, the government isn't able to just give you direction, give you dictation, and you have to say, yeah, sure, whatever, right? We all know this. We're a country that's kind of founded on that, that there are some things the government's not allowed to just do. And when they're saying things like we might be in this for 18 months, I, I just... <sighs> Or, or we're going to have a resurgence of this. We're going to wait till the deaths get very, very, very low. Here's where this is heading right now. New York has had, remember, deaths occur after infections that are two to three weeks old. Hospitalizations, which occur within seven to ten days, are a much, uh, much more important indicator of where this is trending. Well, Cuomo just had his press conference here in New York, and we are the worst hit place And new hospitalizations for COVID-19 are down uh, in the last couple of days, 75%. So the hospitalizations are way down. There's a lot of people in the hospitals fighting for their lives. I get that. And there are a lot of people that are dying who have already been put in the hospital the last two weeks. I get that too. But if you're looking at where the trend is going now, you have a big drop-off in hospitalizations over the last 48 to 72 hours. Which is an, an indicator that there are far fewer people, relatively speaking, who are coming down with really serious versions of this illness in New York right now, and we are in the worst phase of it. So you know what's going to you know what's going to happen. There's going to be a big fight, and it's going to start in the next couple of days if it doesn't already happen. If it's not already underway when you hear me saying this, it's going to be a big fight over did we overreact, or Did we save countless lives and it's already working? The the lockdowns are the reason this is already happening. You're going to look at the timelines and say, hold on a second. We've been in lockdown for a couple of weeks and it's brought the curve down this much. Really? And and so what, what does that mean going forward? And what does it mean for our policy? These are real questions we're going to have to ask, you know, we have been told that there's this enormous rush on ventilators. You know, we're going to need 100,000 ventilators, a million ventilators, all these unlimited ventilators. Nancy Pelosi, I think, recently, you know, we need unlimited ventilators. We don't have unlimited anything. I mean, this, this is getting absurd. Uh, the people that have been shouting everybody else down for needing to do everything that they're told, don't question it, and you need to take this more seriously— they're going to have some explaining to do about why we shouldn't now look at them and say, hold on a minute. Why were your numbers so off? Why are the numbers so off? And, you know, there's going to be a very a very tense conversation here, because remember this as well. If we get out of this in reasonably uh, how do we even describe this? If it's clear from the numbers that Trump did a good job addressing this once the seriousness of it became known and you start to get the economy turned back on and the market starts going up and up and up it'll be slow it'll be gradual but if that started to happen then they know that Trump's going to be president for four more years right I mean this is ultimately in the background of a lot of this discussion they figure that there you know people have suffered from this there's been a lot of loss Loss of life, uh, life, loss of job, loss of uh, life savings, careers. You know, there's been a lot of that already. There is an element on the left that believes that th- that for that to. Uh, you know, that that is going to be something that must result in Trump losing his job. They, they do view it that way. They view it that way. And anything that, that deviates from that uh, will receive tremendous pushback. And, you know, meanwhile, you've also got Joe Scarborough, for example, who's establishing right now that this is this is all about the politics for him. I mean, he's he's a, a an imbecile and a disgrace. But here's what he says. Play seven.
4: It's so interesting, Mika, that now a lot of the same hacks
1: that were saying that this was overblown, a lot of those same hacks are now actually trying to turn it around and say it was the media's fault for not underlining the concerns about this. So, so right. that, here's the deal. I, you're stupid. I know
2: you're stupid. If you're being a hack for Donald Trump on the coronavirus, I know you're stupid. So. Maybe you think other people are stupid. They're not as dumb as you, because you can't argue that the press was overblowing it for two
1: months. Um, The press actually dramatically under blew it. You complete moron. But look, he's paid to go. He's paid to be a fake conservative who goes on TV and trashes anybody on the right for the amusement of liberals. I mean, that is his job. That is his job description. So I suppose he's doing a, a good job in that sense. Uh, but th- there, there will not be a rewriting of history here. This disease was worse than many of us thought. The disease was worse than I thought. But the people that were supposed to know how bad it was were wrong Fauci was wrong. New York State and city health authorities were wrong. The major newspapers, the major media outlets were wrong. We're not going to do this thing now where oh, only Trump people didn't know that this was bad. Everybody else knew it was fine. Or uh, that it was terrible, rather. No. We're not, we're not going to allow that to happen because we understand that this is just the, the politics of this now overtaking the actual argument about what should happen to keep the most people safe and to keep American civilization intact, which is another, I I think that that's something we're allowed to talk about. I think that that's a concern that's, that's valid at this point in time.
0: You're in the freedom hut. This is the Buck Sexton show podcast.
2: So, first
1: of all, it's not a 9-11 level failure. It's much greater than that. As Andy Slavitt said uh, recently, it's the greatest public health failure in 100 years. So think of that. And think of the
2: death toll in Afghanistan and Iraq, Vietnam. If any of the projections hold true um most of the wars that we've seen in our lifetime will be uh dwarfed by the death toll of this pandemic now we need what we need is really a marshall plan or or a new deal for public health we need to scale up personal protective equipment we're in april now and we don't have these vital tools that doctors and nurses and healthcare workers need to protect themselves
1: notice that you have the the casualty comparison here already And calling it a failure and a 9-11 worse than 9-11 as a failure of government. That's what they're saying. And the casualty count issue comes up where they say that there will be more people who die from this than, say, died in the Iraq. You know, Americans who died in the Iraq war. Okay, well, there's also more people who die from the flu every single year than died in the Iraq war. I mean, what what is that really what is that really saying? It's a virus. There was there was no world in which this wasn't going to end up spreading to America and hurting people and killing some people that that's not real. That's not realistic at all. The only real question is, what are the numbers and what are the projections versus what ends up being the final tally? And was everything done that could be reasonably be done in the process to save as much life as possible? There was no beating. No country figured out how to beat this virus from day one. Nobody. I mean, this, this would be like saying, you know, if you get hit with an earthquake, why didn't you stop the buildings from shaking? Right. No, they're going to shake. But how well do you deal with the aftermath? How quickly do you put first responders out there? What? Uh, you know, it's just context here matters so much. This is the first time, you know, and, and it does really put into perspective all the other stuff, all the other anti-Trump narratives of the past were just absurd. There were, there were non-issues that they made into huge national scandals. We're all supposed to care. Non-issues. The Ukraine phone call, Russia collusion, this was all crap. You know, the payoff of Stormy... The payoff of Stormy Daniels was supposed to be some huge national issue. Oh, no, the Stormy Daniels payoff. What a... What a just a laughable pile of nonsense. Media was obsessed with it. Now they've got a real problem. So you have to remember the same people that could make a national tragedy, a national scandal out of nothing now have a real national tragedy to work with politically. And they're going to do everything they can for maximum impact against the against the administration. Here's a you know, here's Rahm Emanuel, for example, using the, the same narrative here that this is all showing us that Trump wasn't ever up for this Play Sixteen.
0: Hoover got replaced because he didn't measure up to the Depression. This president's not measuring up. We lost, and the country now knows we lost critical time. And I would just say to you, we have an acting secretary of the Navy replaced a 20-year career veteran of the Navy, and that's not right, and Congress should have a hearing on it.
1: So he just moved into, wait, he got into the the Navy thing too? I mean, Rahm Emanuel— Uh, is the guy who said never let a crisis go to waste when people were concerned about the complete meltdown of the global financial system and the the freezing of credit markets. I mean, that could have been if there hadn't been action taken action that was taken by the Bush administration, by the way, this always gets forgotten. Like Obama saved us. Obama didn't do it. Obama just showed up and was like, I'm going to spend a whole lot of money to get the economy going. Didn't work very well. The Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, that was a Bush administration initiative. But they never they never they never frame it that way, do they? Uh, but if, if Rahm Emanuel, if, if you remember, when people were really concerned about whether their businesses would be able to continue, would they be able to put food on the table, whether the global financial system would be uh, intact or not, he thought that was an opportunity and the Democrats did. They, they exploited it as an opportunity for political gain. So there's no anyone who tells you right now who's a loud voice on this issue, who says that politics is not playing a major role, uh, is is either not very bright or is not paying attention. This is about to get intensely. It already is political. It's going to become intensely political.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex, Sex and Show podcast. podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm not acting as a doctor. I'm saying, do what you want. But there are some good signs you've read the signs i've read the signs with the other one there are some very good signs also different going together works very well but there may be an indication that if you have a problem with your heart you shouldn't take what we call the z-pack you shouldn't take it and that's okay but i would love to go to a laboratory and spend a couple of years testing something. We don't have time. We don't have two hours because there are people dying right now. If it does help, great. If it doesn't help, we gave it a shot.
1: The president talking about hydroxychloroquine, which I also refer to as chloroquine sometimes. Um, Not to be confused with chloroquine phosphate, the fish tank cleaner that somebody drank that the media, remember the media blamed Trump for that. Which as I've said is Like a doctor telling me to put more sodium in my diet. And then if I were to eat a bunch of sodium cyanide pellets with my steak. That's on me. That's not the doctor's fault. The very obvious rooting against chloroquine that is going on in some media quarters. They don't think of it. They think they're rooting against Trump rooting for it. That's how they in their heads. That's what it really turns into. They're doing us a favor by not letting Trump create false hope. That's what they'll that's what they would respond if you push them on this. It's absurd. It's bizarre. Every press conference, we have the same question. Trust me, if they had new data to support this, they would tell us. But there's always, excuse me, President Trump, do you think you created false hope by saying chloroquine? I mean, these journalists are, are morons, really. Many of the dumbest people in public life in this country are journalists and a lot of them are more of the the press corps asking questions at the White House type. i mean, just imbeciles, really. You know, we we, we deserve better as a country right now that we're getting from a lot of journalists that are asking the dumbest questions imaginable the president of the United States in the midst of a crisis. Um, but the president isn't overstating this. He has not overstated it. it. It is not accurate. It is not true to suggest that the president is doing, you know, is somehow wrong here for expressing a a hopefulness that this will work that's all it is hopefulness right don't i thought we liked hope we liked hope and change can we like hope here here's the president saying look it may it may not play nine
2: because we know long-term, what I want, I want to save lives. And I don't want it to be in a lab for the next year and a half as people are dying all over it's the place. It's already out there. Doctors are already able to prescribe it That's All play- right. That's right. All I'm doing so what is you accomplished? well, I'll tell you what I accomplished. We bought massive amounts of it, 29 million doses of it. We have it coming from all of the labs, we're actually now doing it here, because in case it does work, we want to have it. And we've given it to uh, drugstores, we're we're sending it all over, FEMA's doing it, FEMA's doing it, we're doing it through different channels, many different channels, including the companies that make it. It's a very special thing. Now, it may not work, in which case, hey didn't work and it may work in which case it's going to save a lot of lives now a lot of people say if the people walking in prior to getting it if they take it it has a profound effect well maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't (laughs) i don't want to wait a year and a half to find out
1: what are they not understanding here this doesn't seem like it's a complicated storyline. The press, they're always pushing him on 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 chloroquine. Oh, you know, you said this. And are you giving people false hope? The president says, I mean, he speaks to them like they're morons, which is good because a lot of them are morons. The president says, look, I've let doctors you know, I've said that doctors are using this. The FDA really has, has opened it up. So for doctors who want to use this, they can. It's a clear drug. Every drug has some side effects. Every drug is lethal if you take too much of it. Water is lethal. True story. If you drink it too much, too fast, you can die from water. OK, so these stories that I saw a week or two ago, of if you had, you know, five grams of chloroquine, yeah, if you take a 100 doses of it at once, it's probably going to kill you. No one's that stupid. So why? Oh, the media is that dumb, apparently. Well, why even write that? But they seem to think that speaking truth to power or holding Trump accountable means trying to poke holes that aren't there in what he's saying about chloroquine or, or about the drug itself. He's saying, that, look, we're, we're trying to do everything we can. This is an all-hands-on-deck scenario. We're letting doctors who think it's worth prescribing, prescribe it. There are, these people are under the care of a physician. They're obviously at high risk for a really bad outcome of COVID-19, so that has to be... This is risk mitigation once again. But people want to play games with this. They want to play games with oh what if what if somebody who takes uh, chloroquine has an adverse reaction what if they die from it People die from tylenol does that mean you can't take tylenol I mean do we really have to explain this to the idiots out there It's like they've forgotten how society actually functions or at least they're pretending to because it's useful right now to ask the president very dumb questions I've spoken to frontline doctors who say that it's too early for them to tell about about chloroquine, there's also some indication that chloroquine with zinc works very well. It's all about how far along is the patient, how quickly do you get them the dosage. You know, there there are variables that factor into this that we have to get more answers before we can really we really know what's going on here. But there's all there's so much anecdotal information out there about this from MDS who have spent their lives treating patients that there's more than enough you know, evidence that this is worth letting doctors try to help people save lives. This would be like if, if imagine if journalists showed up every day. Forget about the, the pandemic that's going on right now for a second. Imagine if journalists showed up every day and said, excuse me, Mr. President, uh, but the FDA has has cleared um, right to try for people that have terminal cancer and you are stage four and there's no approved treatment for them. The FDA has cleared right to try for those people. So well, what do you say to the people who might die from the treatment that they're they're using to try to save their lives? Wouldn't you look at them and say, are are you, I mean, are you just excuse me, journal? Are you are you a total idiot? The whole point here is that they're trying to save lives. And yes, there are risks. But this is an intelligent risk to take. If you have terminal cancer, and you think that there's enough to support trying a drug before it's cleared for everybody and told that it's safe and everything else, you should be able to do that. This is, under a physician's care, essentially a version of right to try. And not only is it right to try, it's right to try in a context where there are plenty of doctors out there who are saying, this is really promising. Notice the words, no one, no one out there right now that, that is Really getting attention. I mean, I saw that guy on Tucker's show, what was it, a week or two ago, said, you know, we've killed the virus, or so this is a cure. And Tucker, to his credit, was like, okay, well, we can't check that, but, you know, we'll see. Because that was a lot. I and mean, when you say a cure, that makes people think you take this and there's a 90% plus chance you're going to be fine. That's not where we are. We're not there yet. And we may never get there. But here is, for example, Dr. Anthony Cardillo. I don't think any, I don't think any relative of... Uh, John Cardillo, the uh, conservative commentator who is taking a lot of heat on Twitter for trying to think outside the box. Uh, Here's Dr. Anthony Cardillo saying that this is this is his experience with hydroxychloroquine and patients that he's treating with COVID-19. Play six. What we're finding clinically with our patients is that it really only works in conjunction with zinc. So the hydroxychloroquine opens a zinc channel, zinc goes into the cell, it then blocks the replication of the, of the cellular machinery. So it has to be used in conjunction with zinc. Every patient I've prescribed it to has been very, very ill and within eight to 12 hours, they were basically symptom free. And so, wow. clinically, I am seeing a resolution that mirrors what we saw in the French study and some of the other studies worldwide Um, But what
2: I am seeing is that people are taking it alone by itself. It's not having efficacy.
1: Very interesting. Seems like progress, right? Seems like good news. Yet the way it's reported on by many of the press, it's hard not to feel like they aren't rooting against this. Imagine if we got to a point where we understood that hydroxychloroquine and zinc taken together early enough as an early enough intervention might be able to bring the mortality rate of this down to, let's say, not even just the mortality rate, might limit people. If you could limit people on the ventilators from the two to three weeks many of them are spending on ventilators right now, if if all of a sudden it were more standard, which my doctor friends tell me is usually two to three days on a ventilator is what you see for patients for other issues, not COVID-19. If you could bring that down and then get them and send them home and they're okay after this, And let's say that was that was true of 90 percent of patients, even 70 or 80 percent of patients be a game changer in the fight against this disease. Be fantastic. We wouldn't be out of the woods entirely. But, you know, then we'd realize this is this is really manageable. It's really manageable. We're not. I know we're not there yet. But isn't it a basic human impulse here to at least want to allow for that hope to be open? And okay, let's get more information. This is encouraging. This is encouraging. The media, on the other hand, just keep shouting down how Trump has overpromised on this, how Trump is telling people this is a cure. That's just not true. Why do they have to? This has been a, a consistent problem with the way they've covered Donald Trump. They say he's so horrible and then they have to lie about what he says. If he's so terrible or if he's done something that's so egregious, just tell us what he actually said. Stop misrepresenting it. They misrepresent him all the time. I mean, one of their favorite ways to do it is to act like they don't really speak English and they can understand you know, if he uses sarcasm or if he is intentionally using hyperbole to make a point or, you know, they they pretend that they don't understand that. Trump said he's the greatest in the world and there are no empirical studies uh, comparing him to every other human being. So clearly he's not the greatest in the world. They think this is journalism I and mean, journalism in this country is dead. It's been dead for a long time. We, we have warring, warring propaganda machines and activists and uh, and opinion. And it's largely because one, Twitter has destroyed journalism insofar as we see all these hacks, we see the frauds, we see people like, you know, all the reporters, the New York Times, you know, Tapper and, and uh, you know, the rest of that crew over at CNN. We you look at their Twitter feeds, their lips. It's obvious. And they're pushing for certain agendas. It couldn't be any more clear. But then they turn around and say, no, we're just neutral journalists, right? It's garbage. It's garbage. Uh, but they really have a hard time, it seems, allowing the president that space to try to express the hopefulness, uh, the hopefulness of the American people right now that we all that we get through this, you know, they say they want to save maximum lives. This is what this is what the left and the Democrats keep coming back to. They, they just want to save lives. Nothing else matters to them. Shut down, shut it down as long as you want, as long as it takes. And then we say, all right, but what about this treatment? This treatment could save a lot of lives. They go, oh, this treatment could be toxic. This treatment could prevent other people that need this drug from getting this drug. Okay, well we'll get we'll make more of the drug. We'll find a way to make sure that we get this to the people who need it. But why why always downplaying it? Why always telling us the same They ask Fauci the same G D question every press conference. You know, whoa, did the did the president overpromise this? And he goes, you know, no, the president didn't over he didn't overpromise on it. You know, we're trying to save lives. You know, it's the same thing every every time. And you sit around and you say, okay, well, A normal person would be rooting for this in the most clear way possible because it would mean lives would be saved. Why is it so hard for the media to take that position? It's a a fair question to ask, my friends, and it's one that they don't have any answers for.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
2: Today, every patriotic American heart beats in solidarity with the incredible people of New York and New Jersey. They've really become a very hot zone, but some very good things are happening uh, in New York. The first time where the deaths were less from the previous day, that's the first drop so far, so maybe that's a good sign. It could be. And uh, the hospital levels are starting to perhaps decrease. It's been very short, but perhaps decrease. So we wish Governor Cuomo and Uh, all of the people in New York, great. And uh, New Jersey, your governor's doing a great job. He's doing a great job in New Jersey. They got hit very hard. Uh, I just want to say that the full power of the American government and American enterprise, it really is. This is an all-out military operation that we've waged, and especially over the last number of weeks.
1: New York is in a rough spot, no doubt about it. It's tough here in the city. I've been talking to friends of mine and they say, what's it like? And there's uh, there's the the sense that you have from being out on the streets. I mean, seeing all these businesses closed, the lack of activity, that's very, very distressing. There's a big spike in uh, burglaries of businesses, 75 percent spike in the last month, which is unsurprising because you've got all these businesses shut down. There's no one there. And so if they have any inventory that somebody wants and there's a far fewer cops I mean, here, here Cuomo is saying, A lot of city personnel in in New York and New York City in particular are out sick with COVID-19 play 13.
3: How does the city function with one out of every five officers off
0: the street?
2: Well, Anna, we have that all across the board. We have police officers uh, who are getting sick, fire, uh, FDNY, fire department people who are getting sick, transit workers who are getting sick, bus drivers, subway operators, and on top of that, the healthcare staff that has the highest rate of sickness. So uh, there's no easy answer. You know, you do the best you can Again, we're deploying assets from all across the state. Uh, so, if you get to a situation where the New York City Police Department was so short on staff, uh, we would bring in state police and we'd bring in police from other areas. The most difficult. Are you there yet? We're not there yet. No.
1: Well, that's you know good news and a whole bunch of bad news. At least it's not so bad. They have to call in the state police in New York City. Keep in mind, New York City has over thirty thousand. Officers in the NYPD. So it's an enormous police force, biggest police force in the country. And I think there's always this stat you'll hear about for standing armies. The NYPD alone would be the in the top. I don't know, the top 20 standing armies in the world or something like that. That's I think that's a urban legend. But I mean, I don't know what those numbers really are. Over 30,000 doesn't seem that big to me Uh, for for a military. It's certainly very large for a police force. Uh, this is the problem you've got right now. The city is not able to function normally at all. And that's going to get worse and worse the longer that we have uh, the shutdown in effect. I think the economics of the shutdown are going to become more apparent to people. Uh, It's just some other observations I have. Uh, The and this is, you know, you're trying to find not even just silver linings. These are just observations. It's a it's truly amazing to walk outside now and the. The clarity of the, the cleanliness of the air, because there's no cars really on the road here. It's all of a sudden like it reminds me of when I used to go on camping trips in the middle of nowhere, Canada. Or, and there's just a there's a Christmas and, a, and a, the air quality is. It's remarkable. It's like I'm in the Swiss Alps or something all of a sudden, which reminds me of maybe why I need to move out of New York, even when all this is done. Uh, there's also no honking. Which is really the that is the the rhythm and the sound of New York City is constant honking honking in the background. There's no honking because there's no cars on the road. So it's a really there's just these little things you pick up that are so different about life here right now.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So what is supposed to be the answer right now? What would make all of this somehow better? How could we be in a position to worry a lot less overnight? I don't have an answer for you on that short of a breakthrough treatment. Perhaps it's hydroxychloroquine and zinc or something else. Who knows? But short of that, I don't know what that answer would be. But there are a lot of leftists out there who think they do have an answer. All that we really need for a dramatic change here would be A change in leadership. That's right. If only Joe Biden were in charge of this situation, things would be so much better. All these horrible situations we're going through would be much less of the challenge than they currently are because Joe Biden would get it done. That's what they are telling us. That's what they want us to believe. Here's that guy. Here is that amazing and talented And brilliant leader just showing us exactly the kind of communication and strategy that we could uh, we could expect if Joe Biden were to take over for Trump. Play two
2: the case where we cannot let this we've never allowed any crisis from the civil war straight through to the pandemic of 17 all the way around 16 we have never never let our democracy take second fiddle way that we can both have a democracy and elections and at the same time correct the public health
1: it's not even clear to me that joe biden knows what joe biden was trying to say it just seems like it's just you know uh a mashup of different thoughts and ideas, and maybe something that he read somewhere from someone, and something, and who knows? This is what we are told that Trump has blood on his hands. He wasn't prepared. He's not up for this. But Joe Biden is, folks, a candidate that many Democrats, when they thought that they had better options, you know, younger, more mentally with it options on the Democrat, in the Democrat field, they were saying that, yeah, they don't think Joe Biden, now they're, oh, no, he can handle it. He's going to be fine. I give credit to Joe Rogan here, who is one of the very few podcasts that I will I will actually take the time on occasion to listen to. I do think he's done some very interesting interviews. The guy wants Bernie, wanted Bernie Sanders to win the presidency. So, uh, you know, there's a lot that I think Joe and I would disagree on politically, but he, he does, he is respectful to people and he does do a good interview. And that gets you pretty far with me as far as what I'm willing to watch and listen to. And here is what Joe says uh, about the 2020 election at this phase. And and this is a bit of honesty that I think a lot of Democrats need to hear. Play one.
4: This is the real issue with the Democratic Party. They've essentially made us all morons. Yeah. With this Joe Biden thing. They really have. (laughs) They've made us all morons. Who do we need? I mean, who? None I can't of, vote for that guy. I can't vote for him. I can't vote for him. I can't vote for Trump. There, I would, I'd rather vote for Trump than him. I, I don't think he could handle anything. I mean, you're relying entirely on his cabinet. Like, if you want to talk about a, an individual leader that can communicate, he can't do that. And, and we don't even know what the f*** he's going to be like after a year in office. The pressure of being the president of the United States right. is something that no one has ever prepared for. Right. The
1: only one who seems to be fine with it is Trump, oddly enough. That's right, folks. Honest people look at Joe Biden and say, nope, sorry. As much as you may hate Trump, there is nothing. There is no objective indicator of Joe Biden would be better at handling anything, never mind this pandemic, than Donald Trump is based on what Joe Biden's experience. Remember, this is a guy who's been running for president since the 80s. And it was a he was a joke of a candidate. And then Obama picked him because he kind of needed some guy that, you know, wasn't going to steal anyone's thunder and wasn't going to be that impressive, but was establishment. And, you know, I mean, Joe Biden, just Joe Biden won the vice presidential lottery. That's what happened. OK, Joe Biden won the lottery. And, and now we're supposed to think that he's some great statesman, that he he has the the skills and the the acumen, the the knowledge to make the, the, the tough choices that Donald Trump doesn't. This is just There's no basis for this. There's simply no basis for it. As much as people, uh, you know, as much as people just forget this stuff all the time, uh, hating Trump does not mean that someone else is really competent and good. You know, they had other options. They had other choices here. They had other opportunities to go with, uh, go with, you know, candidates that were not this this particularly out of it and just always, always Joe Biden's always been unimpressive. Always. Guys, a senator from Delaware, I mean, Delaware, you know, you got a lot of lovely people there, but it's not a state that's really dictating to the rest of the union how things are going to go. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, eh, you know, I mean, it's just eh, there's nothing about this guy that screams presidential material. But the problem that the Democratic Party has is that they didn't have anyone else really. And they weren't. See, here's what really happened in this Democratic primary. Democratic Party's gone far left. We know that they've they've uh, more closely and more openly embraced socialism than at any other time in the party's history, certainly in the last, let's say, 100 years or so. And that was what the primary was about. And that was the trajectory of it. And then We reached this point where they just weren't willing. They had this last minute DNC apparatus, all these people that dropped out right in time for for Biden to, to lurch ahead of Bernie. This should have been the Bernie. This should have been the Bernie election for the Democrats. That would have at least been in keeping with the trajectory of their party, where the youth of the Democratic Party are. But the establishment within the DNC, the power structure was worried They were worried about where this was going. They were worried about what this would do. And so they just said, sorry, we're going to go back to the the most boring, uninspiring, quote, safe candidate that they could find. And now they're going to work overtime to tell us that, yeah, he's going to be amazing. He's going to be great. They've never thought that before. And there's nothing that has changed between those thoughts and now other than he's all they got. He's the all they got candidate and they're going to be turning around telling us that if we don't if we don't see this, we're just idiots. We're Trump bots. You know, oh, who do you think Joe Scarborough is going to vote for? Joe Scarborough, conservative or Republican or whatever he says he is now. It's absurd. I want to also tell you, you know, I, I got to watch a bit of because we're all on lockdown. Uh, and by, I finished just so you know, the the book on socialism. We needed to update it a little bit because of what's going on in the world. We're going to release it as an e-book. So that's coming up soon. It's going to be an ebook, book um, and maybe we'll do a print run of it as well. But this is with my friends at Stansbury Research. Uh, so the, the the book is, the draft is in, it's done, and now it's just how long we take to do the copy editing. And so it'll probably be available for download in the next four to six weeks. That was one thing that I finished over the weekend. So I'm really hoping you'll all, work. The, the title, it may change at this point still, but the title has been the uh, Socialism Survival Guide, Eight Radical Predictions About socialism and your financial future so that's going to be out and uh that is why i didn't get to i'm telling this because i didn't get a chance to do the malta podcast siege of malta podcast this weekend the research though is underway i've got i've i've pulled some of it together i've busted out my malta books we're, we're moving on it we're moving on it because i really want to get that one and uh I, I think even producer mark thinks that's a good idea so if he thinks it's a good idea then i know it's got to be a good idea You know, because he's not one to tell me, yeah, Buck, that's genius. You know, he's not he's not that guy. So if he likes it, we know it's good. And even producer Mark, producer Mark, you think the history podcast will be be interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely.
4: I I love any new content and we have plenty of it coming out. Yep, exactly.
1: Exactly. So we were going to have that podcast happening. And uh, so, yeah, um, that's where we are. That's what we got. And uh, what else are we? What else are we looking at? Oh yes, so I watched some shows over the weekend, and I, I was uh, conv- I was convinced to check out The Crown, and that just reminds me a little bit of you know Eliz- Queen Elizabeth s- still going strong. She had some thoughts on coronavirus. I just wanted to share this with you, and then I'll tell you my thoughts on The Crown, the show, which is largely about Queen Elizabeth. Play uh, ten here.
3: While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. This time, we join with all nations across the globe in a common endeavor, using the great advances of science and our instinctive compassion to heal. We will succeed, and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again.
1: Absolutely. I, I like where the queen's, uh, the queen's at on this one. I'm supportive, supportive of her message. And I think that uh, for those who are wondering, The Crown, it sucks you in. It's a pretty good show for what it is. I figured I'm more of an Uhtred son of Uhtred guy. I want sword fights and crazy stuff. And, but if you're willing to, to give it a chance, The Crown, it's so well executed. The acting, the writing, the sets... I'm just going to say it, the suits. I mean, these guys, these British lords uh, and uh, members of the royal family, great custom tailors at work here. This Savile Row stuff, it's pretty, it's pretty money. So uh, I, I've enjoyed watching uh, quite a bit of, of The Crown. I think I'm about five, I binge watched a bit of five episodes in over the weekend. So I could suggest that one for you, and uh, that would be that would now be high on my on my list of, of recommendations. So let's let's transition now into some more. Some quarantine talk, some roll call, some other things. That's coming up.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: All right. So, still in, uh, still in quarantine situation here in New York. Going to be for the foreseeable. I told you I watched some Crown over the weekend, uh, which, which I have to say was pretty good. I thought Ozark got way too depressing and, and kind of kind of painful to watch actually and i've been a big ozark fan producer mark where are you in the ozark still not into season three yet i have the first uh, two okay. seasons done yep. yeah i'll be curious to know what you what you feel about the season three it started off really strong and then it sort of gets i don't know i i actually I, I, I found it so tough to watch some parts of what happens that i started fast forwarding through which for me is never a good you know i only do that when there's nudity because obviously i cannot see any any boobs or else my eyes will fall out of my head because I'm a very good Jesuit educated man who cannot handle these things. But uh, yeah, I I had to fast forward through some of the like really intense stuff in, in Ozark. Like, vi- like violence or like wh- what are you talking about here? No, more like emotional distress. I, I don't know. I, you'll you'll see you'll okay. see when you watch it, and so you you won't be confused about it. You, you. You'll be it'll be very clear like what part of it I'm talking. I'll about have an like aha it. moment. Yeah, you'll be like, oh my gosh, and it goes on for a while. You're like, why am I watching this? What, what did you watch? What was on the producer Mark uh, docket over the weekend? Well, so we finished the Creek, uh, not the
4: actual name of the show, but I can't right, say right. the actual we'll name. Call it the um the Creek, sure. So we, so I knew there was going to, you know, every couple has this moment where you have to watch a new TV show and there's going to be a big fight about it. So eventually we settled on this show from USA Network from a couple years ago called Royal Pains. Huh. Yeah. How was that? It's actually pretty good. We're uh, through the first season, I think, or maybe we're up, up to getting close to the first season. It's about this doctor who gets fired from his regular ER job for a completely ridiculous reason, and then goes out to the Hamptons and becomes a concierge doctor. Basically just being a doctor for rich people that don't want to go to the hospital.
1: Oh. Yeah. That kind of sounds nice. It's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Probably probably deal with some people who aren't necessarily that, that warm, and fu- warm and friendly, but... Uh, yes, that's for sure. I can imagine that's kind of the case. Any, any exciting culinary adventures for, uh, for you and, and Mrs. Mark? I made some chicken fajitas yesterday. You did? I did. Well, look at you. I had a little assist from the wife, but uh, you know they were delicious. They came out well. That's good yeah. to hear. I made some uh, some skirt steak with a little bit of an herbed butter sauce, which uh, was very or an herbed butter, I should say, that you put on it and then it melts after you pull it off the pull it off the cast iron. That was quite good. And then just some seared. I love asparagus. I don't know. What's your favorite green vegetable?
4: Uh, definitely not asparagus. My wife hates asparagus. Um, really? Yes, despises mm. it. Uh, I'm a well, big broccoli guy. When you guys come guy. over, I'm not going to make you asparagus then, so that's yeah, good to know. please don't. Uh, I'm, I'm a big broccoli guy. That'd be my You're first
1: choice. Yeah. No, broccoli's good. Broccoli's <laughs> cool. All we're right, we're going to do, do some roll call here. Let's get to it. Suzanne, first up. Hey Buck, I work in an essential infrastructure company that recycles pallets used in the supply chain. We service mostly distribution centers for Walmart, Target, Amazon, and large chain grocery stores. We are one of the larger plants in our 45 plant chain across the country, operating two shifts six days a week with 100 people on payroll up until today. We laid off six people today with more likely to come. We will likely move from two shifts to one. While we don't see a plant closure on the horizon, our truck drivers will continue to pick up and deliver pallets to these DCs, but a slowdown is definitely happening as people are buying only essentials and saving cash. I believe we will come back stronger as a community and a country when we get control of this. Thanks for all you do, Buck. Shields high. Uh, well, Suzanne, thank you for writing and telling me about this. Uh, yeah, the, the impact of this on the economy is going to just, it's going to manifest itself in very, you know, in ways that are really, uh, <laughs> it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful. There's a lot less buying going on. Yeah, everyone's buying food and household essentials. That's really all the people are buying. Because if you try uh, if you try to buy other things, the logistic supply chain is so focused on those how understandably so focused on food and household essentials that you can't get other stuff. So, you know, when I wanted to buy recently a new tea kettle, for example, I was told that I, on Amazon, I think I had to wait six weeks because I'm drinking a lot of tea these days. I'm trying not to just stuff. You know, I found a stash of white chocolate M&M's. Somewhere in my apartment, producer Mark. Do you know what tastes really good at like 11 o'clock at night when you're watching Netflix? White chocolate M&Ms. Yeah. 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 So I'm trying to do more tea drinking, zero calorie, so that we're not going to have uh, at the end of this quarantine situation, Jabba the Buck doing radio. But it's, it's going to be a, a bat It's a battle that I'm not winning right now. I will tell you that.
4: Yeah, I'm failing the battle also. I have uh, chocolate-covered Oreos in the house somewhere. Dangerous. Yeah, I mean,
1: they're just certain things. And then I, I sit there, and I'm like, well, what else? What else am I supposed to I'm, I'm really going to get excited about doing 100 push-ups a day. Eh, we'll see about that. Jason. Buck, I'm a nurse. The expert saying masks don't work early in this crisis was like saying walls don't work. Of course masks work. It's true the act of inspiration creates a powerful uh, vacuum that draws particles around and through a mask. But the primary benefit of masks in this situation is not to protect those who aren't sick. It's to contain those who are sick. Expiration is relatively passive, and a simple mask is sufficient to adequately contain viral shedding of asymptomatic carriers and those in the incubation phase. Yeah, Jason, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being on on the front lines, trying to help people stay Stay healthy and deal with this pandemic and save as many lives as possible. It is so obvious, isn't it? Of course, masks work. And if the whole problem, they should have told us masks didn't work. They should have said we don't have enough masks for first responders. Make your own masks if you can, and let's get all of our medical uh, medical supplies in place for those who are on the front lines. Uh, and then maybe we'll have more of those for other people. They don't have to worry about do DIY but there should have at least been a DIY or or cover your mouth with a scarf or do whatever you can in public to limit the transmission of this. But instead, uh, the experts chose a path of some degree of dishonesty. Thanks for listening to the Buck
0: Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All righty. Roll call continuing on here. Shelly. Not to be confused with Percy Bish. Uh, hey, Buck, love your show. And a huge thank you for toughing out in New York. You and producer Mark are the best. You have excellent taste, Shelley. North Dakota is usually a fairly hardy state, but this last year has been rough and not just because of the virus. Our main agricultural and en- our main economic engines, rather, are agriculture and oil. Last year's weather was really bad for our farmers. And then this oil fiasco hit. And with it, the virus mixed in. We are struggling. We've not been affected too harshly by the virus. But we've been practicing distancing and business closures and self, self-isolation and online schooling anyway. I can handle most of it all right, but not being able to go to church is hard. Thankfully, our parish is filming the mass, then posting it on YouTube. It will be that way for Holy Week. So sad and surreal, but thank God for the Internet. We will all get through this with our shields high. Indeed, Shelley, we will with our shields high. And thank you so much for writing in sorry to hear the north dakota is going through a rough time uh what a beautiful state and i know that it's a tough time in particular for anybody who's in the uh oil and gas field or in the economic sector of oil and gas and it's going to get a lot worse you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies i think from oil and gas companies in the some, some including some big ones in the uh, months ahead the price of oil is just it's just so low and this is why you know, Trump met with uh, OPEC and he's so funny. He meets with OPEC and he's like, I don't like cartels. I don't like these guys, but I'm trying to tell them to do the right thing here. But it's going to be tough in the oil and gas industry for a while. And I know it's a lot of jobs in a lot of places. And uh, we just hope that it it bounces back. And we know that it will eventually just sooner than later would be great. Cause I know that people in the short term, people suffer in the long term. They may prosper. But in places like or in situations like this, the short term is going to be what's tough. Jim, hey, Buck and Mark. I'm a medical laboratory. We have to, team Buck has got like, we got experts for everything. I mean, the good news is I feel like if Mark or I ever got kidnapped, we just put out the, the Team Buck bat signal and we'd have like a team of, you know, super, super ninjas, a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of Delta guys would come together with a bunch of world-class experts in communications and tracking. And, you know, they'd come get us, Producer Mark. It would be like the end of Spy Game when they get Robert Redford out of the Chinese prison. Yeah, get it, Brad Pitt, rather. It'd
4: of. be like an episode of 24, Jack
1: Bauer, where somebody like him would just come in and save us. Yeah, they're just, it's, there's a bunch of Jack Bowers who listen to this show. We, we know that, so we'd be fine. I got that, we got that going for us, which is nice. Anyone kidnaps producer Mark or Buck, someone in Team Buck is going to get us out. Um, I'm a medical laboratory scientist. This is Jim in West Michigan. Just wanted to r- relay some amazing news I got at work the other day. Abbott, the medical company, has just donated 20 of their quick testing instruments to Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids. Rapids, It allows us to get a positive in five minutes and a negative in 13 minutes. My hospital alone is getting two of them, and they will, they will be up and running by tomorrow. Game changer. We've been swabbing people, but if they weren't serious, they would be sent home, and results would come up to 24 hours later, allowing positives to come in contact with who knows how many more. Granted, they will ha- we will have a relationship with Abbott going forward. Uh, which will make them a lot of money. But still, they donated them for immediate use and should get a shout-out for doing so. Hope you guys are staying safe. My 13-year-old daughter and 10-year-old son live on Long Island, so I'm very concerned about what's going on there. Pass the buck to two more liberals I work with, and they are slowly seeing the light. Shields high, fellow patriots. Well, Jim, thank you. Great, great note, great uh, message today on Roll Call, and we appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I I hear you on all that. I'm glad to see that... uh, Abbott, the medical company, is donating and trying to step up and, and do some good things here. And I mean, that's for Long Island. Long Island's been hit pretty pretty hard. But you know, Long Island is, especially in Nassau County, you got to think of it as a suburb of New York City. N- Nassau is a suburb in New York. Right, producer Mark? That's pretty fair to say.
4: Yeah, that's fair to say. Suffolk's a bit more spread out and there's yeah. more land. But Nassau is basically a city.
1: Yeah, I mean, Nassau, the commuting population from Nassau and into, into NYC proper is huge. So. It's really just an extension of New York City. Um, But, you know, I'm sure your your uh, your young ones out on Long Island, you know, they're statistically they're statistically very, very safe from even getting the disease. And if they did get it, they're statistically very, very, very unlikely to have any real problem with the disease. So try not to try. I know you know that, Jim, but sometimes it's good to hear things you already know. Try not to worry too much about it. Um, And uh, Shields High, thank you so much for passing the show on to some liberals. By the way, we do have a YouTube channel that's up that we're going to it is up and we're going to be sharing it more and more with folks and bucksexton.com the site is is up and running and we are posting and putting up stories. We have a story right now that's going viral on how buy american is going to become a big rallying cry as a result of this crisis. So please go to bucksexton.com if you have not already uh, check in, you know, day to day we're going to have stories up there and just have more and more functionality different things that we're working on comms that we're going to have going there for my uh you know my twitter will be popping up there so even if you're not on twitter you'll see tweets that i'm sharing we're going to do a lot a lot of stuff i've been promising this for a long time we had to do some redos on the site and everything else but bucksexton.com, go to it check it out we're posting stories posting transcripts of the show updating it you can get a lot of news there that's what we're doing so And on the YouTube channel, just look on my social on Facebook or on uh, on Twitter. And we'll put links up there for the uh, Buck Sexton YouTube channel. And please do subscribe. We really need subscriptions. Jane. Hey, Buck. Glad you and Tulu are staying safe and well. My husband and I are seniors. What has me frosted is they told us to prepare for two weeks of self-isolating. We did. And for a little longer. I have a friend who has been bringing things by that I forgot. Now they want five weeks more or longer. We have no family nearby. I can't ask her to do my grocery shopping for months. She has a family of her own to take care of. What in God's name are we supposed to do? What if the Wuhan virus doesn't get us, but starvation might? Well, Jane, I understand your, your concern here, and, and we all share your, your worries about what this is doing to the country and certainly doing to people like you and your husband who are seniors, who we want to make sure that we protect and, and cherish and do everything we can to support. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think that we're we're going to have a tough April. We're going to have to find ways to get through this. I don't think that don't worry about starvation. The supply chain disruptions for food so far are, are really I haven't seen any supply chain food disruptions. There's been a lot of supply chain disruptions for other goods and products, um, but we'll be able to feed ourselves for a long time. And uh, well, certainly for the next few months. So I wouldn't worry about that. And as for groceries, uh, I would try to investigate if there's any delivery options in your area. I know that's very tough. It's very hard in here, here in New York right now. But people want to step up, Jane. Remember that people want to help you and your husband. You know, if I knew of somebody, if I knew of a cup, a couple that were senior citizens in my building, I'm doing uh, a lot of the chores for my parents who are. Um, well, one is a senior citizen and, and one is is not. But they're, you know, they're they're both uh, staying under quarantine. But I'm doing my my chores uh, or I'm doing chores rather to help them out because um, they gave me life. So, you know, I, I think I, I owe them. Yeah. Uh, but I'm doing the best that I can to make sure they're as comfortable as I can. It's also why I took to in so that because I, I, I'm comfortable walking her and, and going out with her. And I'm not worried, overly worried about my personal health. If I were to contract COVID-19 and I am isolated, I don't I don't see people. So, yeah, Jane, try not to worry, reach out, ask people for help. They want to help you. They want to help and you're not being a burden. Remember, we're all in this together, right? So if you are sheltering at home as a as a senior citizen, you're doing your part because you're not then taking higher risks that could make you um, a burden on the healthcare system right now. And it's already facing a lot of, of, of this, this surge of COVID-19 patients. So you're doing your part. And that means other people need to do their part by helping you out and helping you stay fed and and uh, and safe during your shelter at home process. So ask for help. Don't be shy about it. We all need to ask for help right now. Kyle Buck, I think you're right about the economy being in big trouble after the shutdown is complete. To say it'll snap back because of how strong it was before Corona is like saying you'd snap back after being hit by a truck, spending a month in a coma because you were in amazing shape before the accident. No, you'll spend months in rehab and carry those injuries with you for years afterwards. Kyle, I don't know what the I don't know what the future holds on this, man. I mean, I'm worried just like you. I'm worried about what it does to the economy. And and I feel like a lot of people pretend to know and they really have no idea. But I I also will tell you that uh, maybe maybe the Trump team has thought has thought this through pretty well and. That's the hopeful part of me. I mean, if you're asking me to put money on it right now, I'd say we're, we're heading for a rough time, I mean, economically, and for a while. It's going to be like a year before we feel like things are... Now, that doesn't mean... It won't, right now, in economic, there's, no act, there's no activity in, in whole industry, so I'm hoping that that will change. But I hear you, and, and I think that the... You know, the, the willingness to just have, I guess, I don't know, we're we're taking it on faith. I, I don't know what we're really supposed to say about this. Um, we're in a tough spot and uh, no one has perfect answers about this. But, yeah, there's going to be a lack of commercial activity that, you know, they're not going to be able to make up for right away. People aren't going to go to dinner 100 times in a month because they haven't gone to dinner in three months going out to dinner. I mean, it's not going to happen. So w- where does all that go? And, and those who are property owners and those who hold the mortgage on different properties that need money to pay that. And, you know, those debts are all still outstanding just because those debts are deferred doesn't mean they won't be collected. I don't have I don't have a perfect answer on it, though, but Kyle, I'm watching it and I'm going to I'm going to keep speaking the truth as best I can on all this. Jennifer, in all caps, love your show. We love you, Jennifer. Thank you. We don't have a lot of cases or deaths from the virus, but let me tell you what's happening from the economic standpoint. We do I.T. for dental offices, The ADA has closed them until the 30th, except for emergencies. This is 99% of our business. They aren't seeing patients to the normal level. One office had two patients today. Some needed serious work done. We aren't getting paid for services already rendered. We've had customers call to ask to pay partial balances. We have five employees and we are working remotely and have residual income, but we are not some big company. Cash flow is a big problem. We're either going to have to take the loan from the government or not pay ourselves to pay our employees. But that can only go on for so long. We are seeing economic problems, not virus problems. Shields high. P.S. I hate whistling, too. Well, Jennifer, you love the show and you hate whistling. So you're a person of uh, excellent taste and judgment. And uh, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of hearing about your situation with your business, your company. I'm hearing this from a lot of people. And it needs to get out there. We need to know, because as we're making assessments about how quickly we reopen America, let's understand what is being lost in this shutdown. I understand that they, they believe that lives are being saved by the shutdown. Lives are definitely being saved by the increased medical person, by the increased medical effort and personnel and by uh, the mitigation measures that we're all taking, the hand washing, this the, the face masks, the gloves, the, all these things that we're doing. Is the shutdown of the economy a completely necessary component of that? That's the question that I I do not have an answer for you, but it is a question I'm going to continue to ask.
0: You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
1: All right, more roll call. Greg writes, uh, hey, Buck, I heard you talking about guinea pigs the other day. Yes, they are extremely underrated pets. I have three of them myself, and they are adorable and great apartment pets. Most people find it strange that I'm a grown-ass single man with three guinea pigs, but the ladies seem to love it. Shields high. I do I, I, I can see that. I mean, they're cute, you know. I, I would be, I would be uh, enthusiastic about trying out a guinea pig as a pet. I don't think they look like rats. I think that's unfair. Where are you on this, producer, Mark? Yeah, no chance.
4: I don't want a rodent in my home. I'm sorry. Oof.
1: Oof. Your anti-rodent sentiment is, is harsh to the ears of many people out there with hamsters and guinea pigs. I mean, uh, to each uh, their own. I'd guinea pig I before like hamster. Them. Yeah, I'd go guinea pig before hamster. Hamster's a little too much like a mouse for me. But guinea pig is a little more substantial. And I feel like chinchilla is like the Maserati of guinea pig, right? So chinchillas are the, they're like the fancy man's guinea pig. So you could go that route, too. Don't they smell, too? I mean, I can tell you, I've never never smelled a chinchilla, so I do not have an answer. I just meant like guinea pigs and stuff in general. I I think that uh, Tallulah, the French bulldog that is on loan from my parents that I'm taking care of, uh, she she is starting to resemble a guinea pig in terms of her girth ratio to the rest of her body. And I think it's in part because she realized when I cook bacon and eggs, if she stands right beneath my right next to me and looks up at me and puts on her cutest little dog face, She'll get bacon, and that's in addition to the chicken that I cook for her sometimes. You
4: are really taking advantage of the fact that your mother cannot slap you right now. Yeah, I know. For so calling her she, dog
1: a pig. I mean, it's a, it's a guinea pig, though. She's like, a, guinea pigs are cute, but yeah, she looks a little bit like a guinea pig. Dude, I've also called her Baby Seal, because you know, she's all white. She's an yes. all-white French bulldog, and the baby seals are white because they need to blend in so polar bears can't eat them. Yeah, true story. Yeah. Uh, they blend in with the snow. Ted, hey, Buck, got a dilemma. My son is working at a grocery store, and I feel this is a risk to our family. I know at this point he's doing the service to the community because he doesn't get paid very well, but they are not allowing him to wear a mask or gloves. Also, I make three times what he does, and I'm afraid of losing my income due to getting quarantined because someone around him gets infected. Should I make him quit? Just your thoughts, buddy. I really hold your opinion higher than most. Oof, Ted, um... Thank you so much. And I appreciate the, the confidence in, in me and my judgment to even pose this to me. You're right. Your son is doing a service for the community. And, and it's and it, people really, do, really do appreciate it. That's not just lip service. Uh, every time I go into a store and I see people still working there, you know, thank. Thankfully, that means that we can still get stuff that we need. And it makes quarantine more a lot more bearable than it would otherwise be, because I got some canned goods and stuff like that. But I wouldn't want to be living out of cans for weeks and weeks. So I am very appreciative of folks who are keeping stores open, keeping restaurant takeout and delivery open as much as they can. Um, as for your I, first, I, I can't understand why they won't let him wear a mask and gloves. I, I feel like if he's got a mask and gloves on in the store, he's he's probably in, in pretty good shape in terms of risk, uh, pretty low risk. And especially his store should have some social distancing involved for those who are shopping. That's you're seeing that more and more. So I would just want to know why they won't let him wear a mask and gloves. Um, if he wears those, I think I, th- I would think uh, I mean, I would continue doing that job if I was allowed to wear a mask and gloves. No question. As for w- would you keep doing it without and how that affects you and, and your your income? Ted, I, I hate to be this guy, but that's a that's a call only you can make. Um, I, I'm thinking about it, though. But just know that it, it is it is a tough call. You're asking for you could go either way for a lot of people who are reasonable and have good judgment here. That could go either way. But let's see if we can get them a mask or gloves. I think that's the biggest the biggest move that would really help here. Um, Kelly writes, thankful for your voice. You keep saying things I've been thinking for days. I'm very frustrated. My husband and I have five kids. I went to Publix for my weekly grocery run today. I was told I can only buy two packs of chicken and two packs of beef. That will only get us through two meals. And to be clear, I don't overbuy just what I need to feed a family of seven. When I told the manager this, he said, sorry, ma'am, we're now rationing meat. How do I get off this crazy train? We're in Florida. It's way less crazy here. The frustrating thing about all this is there's no one to go ask the hard questions. This doesn't feel like America anymore. It's beginning to feel like communism. Please keep giving us a voice in fighting. You give me hope. Shields high. Well, Kelly, you give me hope. So you stay in the fight. You and your family. You stay safe. Stay strong. Team. Team. Another amazing show coming up tomorrow. Until then, Shields High.